Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juice of the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your critics, Joshua Tracy. And I'm one of your critiques, Corbin Miller. You are one of the main critiques of the show, gotta say. Um, gotta admit. <laughs> and welcome to the show. I know we have been very inconsistent lately, but guess what? Suck my balls. I do not give a fuck. Um, we do this shit when we can. So that's how it goes. Um, we are here today to talk about the 1966 film A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Farm and the 1974 film A Woman Under the Influence. Corwin, do you have any uh, choices to where we start? Not much at all. Uh, all right. I guess let's start with A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Farm for no particular reason. Um. So, funny thing happened on the way to the farm. Whistling which was... sounds fucking horrible on the mic. What does? Whistling. Oh, well, God bless you. That's, that sounds yeah. like a Corwin Heller I problem. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Anyway, the movie was written, sorry, directed by Richard Lester. It was written by Melvin Frank and Michael Pertwee, based on the book by Bert Shevelov. Uh, it stars Zero Mistel, Phil, Sieber, Phil Silvers, and Buster Keaton. That's right. The Buster Keaton. I might have to pick a Buster Keaton movie. At oh, some my point. God. That was Buster Keaton. Yeah. The old man running around the seven hills. Yeah, that's, Buster that was Buster Keaton. fucking Keaton. Yeah, this is the last movie he ever Holy did before he died. shit. Yes, that is silent movie fucking legend Buster Keaton. Um, oh, my God. And if you and if you hear that and you've never watched a Buster Keaton movie and you go, how can he be a legend? It's just silent films. You've never seen a Buster Shut Keaton movie before up. because the stunts that that man does are reckless, absolutely reckless. And they are very impressive even today. A hundred years later, they're horrifying today. Genuinely hard the fucking with the train, with the railroad ties. Oh, my yeah. God. The house yeah. one's obviously very famous. But there's there's so many that are just gut wrenching that he actually did and very nearly killed himself. Um, but anyway, so yes, that was Buster Keaton. We'll touch more on that later, I am sure. Um, this film had an estimated budget of about two million dollars and a box office around three point four. That's what I'm seeing. So a success, not a huge one. It, it one and a half times its 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 cost, uh, but. Eh, I I guess um, the tagline of this film is something for everyone. Yeah. yeah, which I also believe is one of the lines from the opening song number. It's the entire opening song number. Something a comedy for everyone, a tragedy tonight. Yeah, you're right. It is the sec- second line there. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> that's been stuck in my head so it's much. really fucking good this film won a single oscar on the back of a single nomination and that was for best music scoring of a music adaptation or treatment it was won by ken thorne with don black accepting the award um the movie is about a wily roman slave schemes to earn his freedom by romantically uniting his master with a courtesan but matters get complicated when he ends up dragging in his neighbors around him, leading to chaos. Uh, Corwin Hollow, this was your pick. Tell me about it. 
this is a quintessential classic Zero Mustel movie. Um, it has an almost... Um, oh my God, my brain is just not working at all. Um, I'm just going to move on before I fuck up this even further. Uh, I just think this is a classic 1960s comedy that is just perfect for exactly what it is, which is just a laugh out loud film that has something for literally everyone. It has drama and romance and action and just gut-wrenching laughs and just mm, love it. It's it's such a classic comedy. And I mean classic in terms of like the, the style of it because it is the the joke per minute density is I mean fucking crammed in there. It's like it's like a bagel is to carbs. You know, it is highly mm-hmm. condensed mm-hmm. jokes per minute. And even the ones where it is highly predictable what they're going to do will still get a laugh out of you because of the delivery, because the, the personalities are just so there, you know, like with uh, and it's so much lends itself to zero Mistel. But like when um, the fucking pimp, basically, whatever his fucking name is, I, I'm bad with names. We all know this. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, Phil Silver. They're all like Latin Roman names like it's I can't remember. Right. Um, oh, Marcus Lycus. There we go. Comes up to, to Zero Mistel when they're when they're doing the everybody ought to have a maid. Um, and and Marcus Lycus is like, where's where's my where's my virgin? And, you know, like Zero Mistel is doing all this uh, diversion shit, which, you you know, is what he's going to do because he's running this whole gambit. But it's still Zero Mistel and it's just fucking hilarious. And mm-hmm. it, it's like a meta thing going on because he's like, ah, wait for the song to be over or some shit like that. <laughs> and then he just joins in the song number. It's also a fucking ridiculous song. Oh, it's very Monty Python-esque scene. Very. Of them and like Camelot and yeah. Oh, how about the sets in this movie that all look like they were done with crayon? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it, it's like, you know, that this was shot on a set the size of my apartment. And I do not oh, yeah. live in a very large apartment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that forum is a very, very small part of like a Hollywood lot somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like you look at this and it's like, I am assuming this had a budget of about 40 to 50 dollars and boy they made it work i don't know i think it's one of those films that just it is greater than the sum of its parts it really is and 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 you know so much of that is owed to zero who owns the screen for basically the entirety of this movie since he's kind of masterminding it um which also helps because the the threads of who thinks what are tied so tightly it can get kind of easy to forget in the beginning as mm-hmm. it's kind of all starting to 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 weave together uh, because you got zero who's a slave but the his owners are away for the weekend um, and leave their son in charge who promises zero his freedom if he can get him hooked up with that blonde chick and Marcus Lycus thinks that he's already been freed and just trying to pound ass and then is convinced that the, that the blonde chick has um, uh, is a leper oh, is, is the plague. Yeah, the plague and um, the crease plague. That's right. And the, the other 
the house servant guy thinks one thing and then the husband comes back and he's got another thing that he thinks and and he's trying to bang her the whole time and is you know <laughs> taking a bath in his neighbor's house because it's like oh you cannot even let her smell you yeah, yeah I, I mean it's a good it, time it's it's so much going on that it's um it it does almost get confusing if not for zero mistel doing so much heavy lifting <laughs> in this movie mm-hmm. and some superb physical comedy that you don't get nearly as much out of when you see him in um uh, the producers the producers mm-hmm. is a lot of he's very animated and he's doing a lot with like his eyes and you know he's very dynamic with the voice and all that typical zero stuff but it's not right. very physical because he's you know like a, a white collar guy for the most part in this he is very physical yes and i i think it just adds so much to it for what you're kind to, trying to do like he is desperate to get you know to the bottom of all this and i think that plays off so well with how just touchy-feely he is at all times with everyone around him Oh yeah, he's he's got all the slime of his character in the producers, uh, and the 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 very sweaty urgency, mm-hmm. but with really, I mean, a lot of, and I think that's what makes the Buster Keaton appearance in this movie um, so delightful because it has so much of that like that silent era slapstick to it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, God! Just knowing that it's Buster Keaton makes it so great. I know. I completely forgot he was in it, and then I turn it on, and I see his name in the credits, and I was like, oh my god, that's fucking right! That's him! Yeah, like, seeing him on screen, it's also just so wild, because you gotta think, this is 1966, Buster Keaton had been making movies for, like, 40 years at this point, and this movie came out 60 years ago. He's He's been making movies longer than most of these actors have been alive. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to figure the actor that played Hero was born in like the, I don't know, 40s probably. And Buster Keaton's career was basically dead by then. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's why we should all have maids. I mean, everybody ought to have a maid. Everybody ought to have a working girl. Um, yeah, it, it's and it's just it's just a delightful concept for a movie for what feels like a very wholesome movie because when you think of musicals in the sixties, mm-hmm. hookers <laughs> getting sold in and out of slavery for their virginity is not what sticks out. I would imagine. No, I mean also similar to why it wouldn't really stick out about plays about Hitler being pretty cool of a guy. Right. Right. And it's something about the, you know, the audacious nature of that, that I helps with this so much is it's, 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 it's not innocent in the slightest. I mean, zero Mistel is a slave. There are prostitutes that are, also slaves being traded as currency mm-hmm. <laughs> with currency very literally um 
as zero is trying to earn his freedom from the people he's enslaved to it is a ludicrous concept of so much more beyond than the producers which you can at least be like all right they're making a play it's a play about a very naughty thing but it's a play this is like nah this woman's a virgin and i'm gonna make sure she goes and gets railed by the wrong guy i need this guy to go be around somebody else that's a that's a fucking big concept yeah i like that I like when movies take that step, go out that, go out that, go out that, when they kind of just go over the edge a little bit and just say, hey, this is something beyond ludicrous that people are going to jaw at, and we're going to make it completely normal and acceptable, and just the least concerning thing about this film. I think the most concerning thing about this film is that... um... Zero Mostel ends up getting the Amazonian girl at the end. Like we're supposed to pretend he's attractive. (laughs) Well, it's because he speaks, he can communicate with her. He just gets her. He is just a sweaty bag of pulp. (laughs) He was like 30 years older than her (laughs) with the buggiest bug eyes in the world. Oh yeah. Yeah, he does. And it's almost concerning how buggy his eyes are. Oh my god, it's vicious. Like, there's yeah. one moment where he like does like a a, a face, you know, for a, a, a joke where his eyes look like mm-hmm. they are on the verge of popping out of his skull. Which, to be fair, they are. Yeah, and it's creepy. But we love it anyway. I feel so. I know Corn and I both watched this movie when we were in like high school, and I don't know about you, but I remember clearly wrongly that hero was a bigger part of this movie because once he gets the task of going to go find the mayor sweat, he's kind of gone for like a while. Yeah. He, you know, he has a role to play at the end there, but for the majority of like the meat of the movie, he's not there. Did you have that same recollection or is that just me? No, I did. Um, I didn't think he was going to be like the same level of, uh, impact as like zero obviously but I thought he was like a central character which by all means he was not no he was he was a means to an end very much so um, really the only time you kind of feel his presence is in the physical comedy he does at the end with the whole chariot debacle uh-huh. uh, Outside of that, he is very much so just like that guy who is there. Which he is very much there. Certainly is. Um, <laughs> I guess. He's kind of annoying as a character. I don't know. I, he, I do not watch that movie for Hero. Well, He's I mean, imagine hero. it's such a fucking hilarious idea for him. Though. Like, imagine your hero's parents. You're mm-hmm. gone for a, a nice like little weekend or whatever. You come home. Your son is married to a prostitute slave. He freed your only slave. Uh, and no, they I, to. I guess you're right. That they, they have the the other guy, but he so he he, he freed your slave. He's married to a, a prostitute. 
and and he just is gonna like chill, I guess. He's right. just gonna stay with, and I could totally see him of all people being like, "Hey, I need a place to stay. Can I hang out here with you?" And then being like, "No, go fuck yourself." And here I'm like, "No, of course you can move in with me and my new wife, with you and your wife." Talking his way into that, I could see it. That's the sequel that um, Warner Brothers never produced. I don't know if Warner Brothers produced this one, but I know they didn't produce the sequel. Is there a sequel? There a funnier thing happened on the way to the forum? A terrible also, thing happened in the forum. What is the funny thing that happened on the way to the forum? <laughs> Everything. It's a catch-all. But they're already, the movie is a... they're already in the forum. They're in the forum. They're out of the forum. They're around the forum. He, she, we forum. It's all the forum. So... I always bring up the Wikipedia plot of these movies um, to make sure I, I'm not missing any points that I wanted to address because it's it's easier than taking notes because it has the whole plot there. And I just want to share with you one of the funniest lines from a Wikipedia plot that I, I've read because it's just hilarious. Um, and it is um, in an attempt to fake out the great gloriosis and buy enough time to come up with a plan that will give Philia to Hero Pseudolus and his overseer Hysterium stage a sit-down orgy for 14. <laughs> oh, I fucking love that. Accurate, it's, too. I love how they specify that it is a sit-down orgy. It's, it's a not formal a, orgy. It's, it's not a black yeah, it's tie not, affair. Right, right. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a, 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 a you know, easygoing, lax, walkabout orgy. It's a sit-down orgy. It's a classy affair. We're here to hang out. Have a good time. Oh, well, I guess God. that's that's the purpose of any orgy. I also I love that the um, the other slave woman that the family takes in for breeding stock, which is also just such a blunt thing to say and is played <laughs> off. It's such a joke, but it's like. I mean, it is what it is, and it's not really a racial component here because it, it was Rome, and they just kind of did this to everybody, including like other Romans. So it, it's not like this was in the U.S. The with, with with all that stuff, but it is still a weird and uncomfortable thing to say. Um, we'll say and, she uh, she took her job seriously. I was, that's what I was about to say. Because like it, it is hilarious how like you got to assume she's pulling those dudes into her room at the end. Noticing that they are not zero metal and it's going like, eh, well, I'm getting plowed down one way or the other. Either she has terrible eyesight that's never been corrected, or hey, she strong, independent woman who don't need no man. Well, she she needs something up there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Um Everybody ought to have a maid. Everybody, Everybody ought to have, ought a, have working a working girl. girl. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure like what else there really is to to say about this, honestly. What else do you need to say? I do Great wish film. that the scene in the Coliseum lasted longer. I enjoyed that. I wish they just kind of varied it up a little bit if they were to make it longer, like it already felt kind of like drawn out with like the one bit they were doing. 
I oh yeah that, like there was a agreed. lot more that they could have done there agree that that i think that's what i would change my my response to then because yeah that one thing was like all right uh, all right come on um but i felt like there's enough props uh in there that they mm-hmm. could have done a lot of a lot of stuff with it and seeing as it was a vastly different set i imagine they did do a lot of shooting there because you're not just going to make an entirely new set just for that one scene when the rest of the film is in one entire set so i'm sure there was it was just stuff that got cut one now we one need to review the think. director's cut of a funny way a funny thing happened on the way to the forum yeah uh, that's that's what we're all missing the director's cut okay uh, we are uh, all right well if we don't have anything else to say then uh corwin hello this was your movie so why don't you get us started on a rating and a review four i give it a four i think it's just incredibly funny it's one of those things where it's not perfect it knows it's not perfect it has its ups it has its downs but at the end of the day i don't know anyone who could watch this and not think incredibly highly of it yeah this was uh this was an insanely popular theater production at the time uh, Zero Mistel actually picked the director of this himself because he had so much sway because he was the star of the theater production. And again, it was massively popular. Um, Which is on Broadway. Yeah, that he had the uh, weight to do that. And I, I think it shows, you know, this there's a level of comfortability in certain roles that you see people have when it was previously a stage production when when they had those roles like uh, on a dramatic end of it, but I think a similar understanding Denzel Washington and fences. That was a role that he had on Broadway. Um, and you could almost feel it kind of, mm. you know, take a, take that shape on, on the screen. And I think that same thing goes for the physical comedy of this movie, because zero Mostel, when you're doing something on a stage, you have to do it much bigger than if you're doing it on screen because it's very difficult to notice subtlety mm-hmm. on theater. If you're, you know, up in the fucking mezzanine or in the you know, back of a, of a, of a orchestra theater or whatever. And to have it be the same type of exasperation and like frenetic energy that you would get on a stage on a screen, I think translates really well. And zero Mistel does it as only Zero Mistel can, and it is a wonderful piece of, like, weird 60s filmmaking. So I'm riding with Corwin. This is a, a solid four for me. Two. I thought you said two instead of coup, and I was confused. Two. All right. Yes, I know how to count. One, coup, three. All right. <laughs> uh, let's take this then into the 1970 form. 74? 74 film, A Woman Under the Influence, written and directed by John Cassavetes. Uh, it stars Gina Rowlands, Peter Falk, and Fred Draper. This film had an estimated budget Oh, um, of... I don't even have the estimated budget. Never mind. I thought I did. I do not. Um, I know that this was in... I'll get into it in a second. It had a... a uh, box office, a gross box office in US and Canada of $13 million, which I'm going to say is pretty good considering this is an independent production. We'll get to that in a second. Um, this film had no tagline, which is fine. It 
does not need one. Not every movie needs a tagline. I support this. Um, it, they're usually not good, as we know. They are not, and they don't provide much except for fodder for us to make fun of you. So, it was nominated for two Oscars. Didn't bring home either one, but was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Gina Rowlands and Best Director for John Cassavetes. Um, it is about. Although wife and mother Mabel is loved by her husband, Nick, her mental illness places a strain on the marriage. Now, real quick, going back to the funding of this movie, um, just to mention it really quick. John Cassavetes is a very important figure in the history of uh, cinema. And this movie, along with a lot of his other productions, is a major reason as to why he basically forced the creation of independent films. He often funded a lot of his movies himself uh, based on his earnings from acting because he was also a, a, a famous actor. He was uh, nominated for an Oscar for his role in The Dirty Dozen. And in uh, addition to funding he received from other people, Peter Falk, who stars in this movie, gave like $500,000 to help make get this movie made. And then he ended up distributing it without the help of a distribution company. Nowadays, we have... Uh, independent distribution companies like A24 and, you know, like Blumhouse and stuff like that. But back then, what John Cassavetes ended up having to do, because if it wasn't a major distribution company, it was nobody, is he actually called guys who ran theaters and was like, hey, will you play my movie? And just got enough of them to say, okay. And then when this movie ended up getting some buzz later on from uh, famous people who had seen it, who talked about it, like... um, Richard Dreyfuss talked about this movie on some talk show. Um, then writers went to go see it. General public went to go see it. It ended up getting uh, in larger demand from independently or uh, individual theaters. And then it received Oscar nominations, which also helped boost its, its stature. And it became a very famous movie after that. But this really, really is the birthplace of independent cinema. Um, this movie wow. being one of the key films to kind of, make that mold uh i literally had no idea yeah that is uh that is why we uh there is no estimated budget for this movie because it was it was independently financed we just have no we're not going to know we have no idea um and it really is just a fascinating story so uh, like john cassavetes remortgaged his home to make this movie God, imagine having that much confidence in yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was also uncommon for a lot of filmmakers to write and direct their own stuff like 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 this, where it, it, it's small and personal in this way. You know, that type of stuff was being done on a studio level uh, under studios convictions. You know, uh, mm-hmm. guys like um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola doing The Godfather with major studio backing where he's using uh, previously existing material, something tangible this it, did, it didn't happen in this way at this time. So very interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, the movie itself. Uh, this is my movie. I'll get started. This is it's such a different way to tell a story. What Cassavetes often does in his films, which is why I had said when I picked this movie, I had seen I watched it the week that I picked it and I needed to watch it again. Because even though if I describe to you what happens in this movie, it's very easy to picture a cinematic version of that. And mm-hmm. this feels like the least cinematic way to convey the story. And because of that, I would it, ends up, that, yeah. 
feeling much more, you know, that, that added grit from the like lack of grandiose cinematography. And so really contributing to the, I guess like art or oeuvre of the, of, of the film, because it's, it's so quiet. Like there's almost no score and the, dialogue is so like non-highlighted and non-high-minded and it 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 feels documentarian in so many instances that it's almost tough to process kind of what's going on because the movie doesn't set it up for you as cleanly as a normal quote-unquote normal movie would you know, there's no music cues to kind of help subtly guide you into how you're supposed to feel um, in terms of its tone and also in terms of where it starts and stops. You know, there's there's not a lot of like ominously happening in the background or uh, the editing isn't done in such a way to convey to you directly how everyone's feeling. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 like a, it's like the freeform jazz of movie making. It's very different. Um, and the, and the, the story it's telling is fucking wild. Uh, it's, it's very personal, but it's also, if this was to be a major picture directed by like Scorsese or someone who was big back in the day, like you can tell how dramatic it would have been with all those cues in there. And it, it almost sneaks up on you how large the emotions end up kind of getting in this. And you're watching, and you're almost. It almost gives me the give me the feeling of how did we get here? I'm watching this movie, and I still don't really know how we got here, like emotionally, because of how this got got told. And that's why I wanted to give it the rewatch. And I think it's very effective, but it is so incredibly different. Uh, what? Well, give me your take on it. I genuinely found it incredibly boring because of that same style of storytelling that you talked about it doesn't really have the audio cues it doesn't really have a score it doesn't have anything that really keeps you heavily involved in what's going on it just like you said it was very documentary and it was you know you're sitting there fly on the wall as a part of these conversations and that has its merits, but I don't think it made it a, you know, better enjoyment scenario or, you know, piece. I genuinely did not find it captivating. Um, I thought the story was something that had a lot of um, promise and was definitely incredibly interesting in what it was trying to say i just didn't really care all that much for the storyline the way it was presented and just it just felt like a slog just trying to get through it and uh just wasn't my type of film wasn't for me Um, i mean i i I understand it it is so incredibly because Whatever movie you watch today is going to, in one way or another, be based off of the directorial innovations of D.W. Griffith, who is a horrible guy, but invented modern directing. Terrible and, person. Terrible films. 
well-made films, but terrible. Right. Exactly. Um, but if you watch a D.W. Griffith movie today, which why would you bother? Um, but if you did, you would recognize all the things that I said are not present in this movie. You would recognize mm-hmm. the music cues. You would recognize the editing styles and what they were trying to convey, whether it was necessarily analyzed by you or not. The, the feelings that those types of things are trying to get across would creep up on you. Again, they're horrible movies in terms of their their content and their subject matter. But you would understand the directorial style translating directly, even though it's a hundred and however many years later. And this throws so much of that out the window and really tries to, I think, narrow in on raw emotion over anything else. And I, I think it's that coupled with the fact that this story is nothing but emotion that attracts me so much to it because, you know, faces, which is another Cassavetes movie does something very similar. Um, and it's also a very good movie, but I, I think the, uh, maybe it's the combination of Gina Rollins and Peter Falk in this or whatever. It, I think it really grips because I don't know what else you could do to access that. If this is what you're going for, you know what I mean? He like so much is stripped away from this to get to the idea of raw emotion from just what is happening in that documentarian style. If that's what you want to do, I don't know how you do it better than this. And I know we touched on the idea that this might not be the most interesting way, at least for you personally, to consume this. But again, if, if the intention is what I'm saying it is, this is basically that to perfection. And it's hard to argue against that. It's hard to say, well, clearly this had a very specific intention, um, a very specific feeling and emotion that it's trying to draw out and express. And you're right. Like it is very specific in what it's trying to do. It just so happens that because of that, it's a very niche film or I say that I I can't really speak for anyone else. Um, It's really just, Hey, this isn't going to be a catch all like films are today where it's going to be for, you know, anyone and everyone, it's going to fit the lowest common denominator. It's really just, okay, this is what I'm making. It's an independent film. So it's going to be exactly what I want it to be because I'm the one producing it, making it. It's my baby. Okay, that's exactly what we got, and we should treat it for what it is. And I can't take anything again away from that. It's just the style of film that it ended up being and needed to be just isn't something that really fills the you know top tiers of my you know favorite types of films to watch and most enjoyable films to watch, things like that. So I guess let's uh, let's talk about the the plot of this a little bit. Um, actually, even before we do that, what do you what do you think of about the the acting of this between uh, especially our two main um, screen time getters, Gina Rollins and uh, Peter Falk? I mean, it's hard not to look at Gina Rollins and her performance and think it's a tremendous performance that just happens to be a character that drove me nuts. Just like. 
watching that character and watching her interact i can't do awkward situations when i watch <laughs> movies tv in person like i just like oh it's the worst thing in the world it's like pulling teeth so that just drove me nuts this entire you know watch through just because it's like i am suffering here this is awful this is just like the most awkward situation and it by all means it needs to be because that's exactly how it would be like if you were in that situation it just uh, it was awful you want some spaghetti <laughs> no i do not want some spaghetti oh uh, god like trying to like watch it and put myself in that such an such situation i just i would lose it there's no way uh i say that i would be nothing other than just super polite and just sit there awkwardly but like internally i would be panicked uh and this role also obviously written for jenna rollins who is john cassavetti's wife um uh, she was the inspiration for this film uh based on conversations her and cassavetti's had had about uh representation of modern women in cinema um so her befitting the role even though it'd be awkward is, is makes a lot of sense what do you think about uh peter falk in this and also as a, as a follow-up before you even answered the question in the first place were you ever a columbo fan no i don't know if i've ever seen columbo outside of people talking about columbo but no i can't call myself a fan yeah, I was just wondering because I've I've never been a I've never watched Columbo. Like my parents loved Columbo, of course, because you know they're older than me and were alive when Columbo was actually running. But I've never <laughs> that's Peter Fox's claim to fame. You know that that's his right. that's his thing. He was Columbo, um, and the grandfather in the Princess Bride. Um, but sure. uh, so, what did you think about uh, fellow fellow Bronx Jew Peter Falk? Mm. What did you think about uh? his role in this oh i just had to sit there the whole time just like why are you married to this woman like i couldn't deal with that i couldn't like that's too much of a headache for me Ugh. but other than that i thought his acting was fine i don't think there was anything outrageously positive or negative about it it was just i thought he fit the role well and that was you know that's all i can say about that I think he was a really he had a really interesting representation of kind of the the two sides of these like classic men that that we often hear about, you know, like, uh, Mm. you know, the the classic man working a blue collar job who comes home to his wife and expects dinner on the table and the kids shut the fuck up. Uh, But Peter Falk, like he has a real obviously there's, there's a lot of grit to him and he raises his voice and, you know, he justified or unjustified or whatever hits Gina Rollins at the end of the movie um, and puts his hands on her. But, you know, despite all the grit, he is also very sensitive to her and her needs and her condition, you know, and when -hmm. the guys start asking about her at work and making comments about her, he's incredibly defensive. And even in the beginning of the movie, before you kind of see how Gina Rollins is, he, he talks about how he feels so bad for her. She's locked up in that place. She has to deal with the kids and all this stuff. She needs a break. She's overworked. You know, like it. he's even he's though her he, biggest supporter. Right. Right. And it's and it's a, it's it's a 
character representation, I don't think I know a lot of portrayed in that type of way, which I, I really enjoy about the character. Mm-hmm. He definitely comes into his own in the sec, like once he makes that decision. The first half of the movie, I don't think he's anything other than kind of the what we would expect. Like he has his moments, sure, but by all means, it's just I don't expect anything different from him than I would any other character playing that role or put into that situation comparatively, you know? Right. Um, so now let's get into the actual plot of this movie then. <laughs> um, and we'll, sure. we don't have to run super long on this. I know we're already going a little bit as it is, but uh, as we do. Yeah, it, it happens. At least this isn't like the sports podcast. Shout out Juicing the Numbers, where we go much longer on random things. Uh, <laughs> most recent episode, we talked about random Oakland Athletics players for like so much longer than we were supposed to. Hey, anyway. It just so happens that we have two very specific topics on this show, and the other show is just, we're going to talk about whatever and see what happens. The other show is word vomit that just happens to be phrased around sports. Um. That's the best way to describe our show. I love it. That I love I've it ever so heard. Much. Uh, so the actual plot of this movie essentially is that Gina Rollins is. And it's never really made explicitly clear what is going on with her. You could say she's donkey brains. <laughs> Do you brains. have a certification that says you don't have donkey brains? Uh, <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about that the entire film. <laughs> Especially because it's the 70s. Oh my god, that, yeah. that, that, that's that's that wow. I'm like that. And, I and he genuinely he genuinely reminded me of Danny DeVito the whole time. I, there, there you so, go. Yeah. I, I could see it. Short yeah. New York accents. I'm I'm with you. Um but I I would think the argument for what's up with, with Gina Rollins is somewhere around a combination of overworked slash overstimulated with, uh, you know, trying to keep up with uh, housekeeping and raising the kids and not being with her husband a lot and coping with that in some type of way. Obviously there was a lot going on in the uh, late sixties to early seventies with the medication of housewives. I mean, the Rolling Stones wrote a song about it. Aldous Huxley wrote a book about it. Um, there was a, a lot of that going on. So some combination of the overstimulation of maybe some self-medication, alcohol, pills, whatever. Um, that's not made explicit or overworked with the kids. Uh, or even just uh, on the other side of things, some type of, of mental illness, which had a very poor understanding and um, societal uh, relation in in the, in the seventies in general. You know, having a mental and we didn't have names for most mental illnesses back in in the in the seventies, mm-hmm. let alone good diagnoses and and treatment. And How so you say we as if you were alive in the nineteen seventies. Uh, spiritually floating around there somewhere. Um. So it it it's not made explicitly clear. What's up? But when you see Gina Rollins as she interacts with um, her mother and kids at the beginning as they're going away for a weekend and then, um, you know, she 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 cheats on her husband with this guy and she acts super weird to him. And does she cheat on him? Yeah, 
I thought it was just like she pushed him off and it was just like into interpretation of like, did they actually sleep together? That was like the next morning. Yeah, but like the way he's just like dressed and just pacing around the house, I just didn't know if it was clear whether or not it happened or if he just kind of stuck around hoping something would. But I uh, I read that as they slept together. But fair. I you're right, they never make it explicitly clear. Um regardless, you know, she behaves also referred to him as Nick, and that was another little intricacy there that was like huh this is this is a fold in this this is interesting right and that that, you know it's it's that type of stuff along with how she interacts with like a lot of the 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 crew that comes over those like 14 dudes that just walk into her house where it's like there's so much muddiness around why she behaves this way it it basically clouds i think your ability to read what's going on with her so much to the point that it accomplishes its goal, which is to say it doesn't fucking matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I the real agree with that. Yeah. Like it, the specifics, the semantics of it don't matter. It's just, this is what it is. Right. And, it, it, and it's, it's like that. that interpersonal part more than anything else. Like how am I inter? how is Gina Rollins interacting with Peter Falk that leads up to him getting the doctor involved to put her in an institution? You know, like why she's acting that way really doesn't matter. Agreed. Um, so anyway, that, that's basically the next thing that happens. You, you, you see a lot of interactions between the, the two of them and, and her with her kids. There's a there's a birthday party where this, this guy, one of the parents of one of the kids doesn't like the way Jenna Rollins is with the kids. And after she like <laughs> tells all the kids to play dead because that one kid's dad is there and she's like, they're dying for you or some shit that just fucking bizarre um all that comes to a head with peter falk being like we need a doctor here like you're not acting right and she goes away and then there's uh, a handful of scenes of peter falk basically trying to play like single father and again there's there's even like a a very interesting scene with him and uh, another uh, i think it was another, another dad where they're kind of just talking about like you know, how to handle that type of stuff very casually. It's not like it's a heavy conversation, but it still just feels like something you, you wouldn't expect out of this type of movie um, mm-hmm. that is present. And then at the end, there's uh, the movie ultimately concludes with uh, a welcome home party for Gina Rollins that is thrown by Peter Falk. And there's some conversation with the mother about whether or not the party is a good idea, if it's going to overstimulate her, uh, things yeah. get wild. Um, Gina Rollins ends up I mean, basically becoming kind of overstimulated after all the guests leave. She ends up cutting herself. Uh, Peter Falk like slaps her to, I guess, try to, you know, it feels like an old school thing of, uh, you're hysterical. Bah! Um, and, and then they just kind of like make up and go to bed. It's yeah. it, it it's a movie that's kind of just like walks its way into everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And again, that's one of the reasons why I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I could have if it was entirely different. Um, there isn't any. Oh, what's the term for it? There's no rush. There's no, you know, 
pep in the step. It's just kind of like it's there and you're just kind of meandering your way through the film. And at no point does it kind of reach like your heart rate doesn't really change at all while watching this. And films don't need to have that to be good. And it's not something I'm really, you know, trying to pick on. It's just like, yeah, you're okay. I'm like, I'm watching this. It's like reading a newspaper almost. It's like, yes, these are the news. This is what's happening. Ah, yes. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm not. Again, I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with you because it, it is like when you say documentarian in, in its style. I mean that is very a presentation of a fact. You know, uh, obviously documentaries, modern day documentaries especially, do a lot to add in some of the things that we had mentioned to try to you know maintain intrigue and make it feel a little bit more standard film like. Um, but this really doesn't have that and. That's part of one of the reasons I wanted to watch it a second time and why I ended up picking it to force myself to watch it a second time because it, it's, I don't think anything, unless you're like deeply steeped in a lot of, uh, I mean, more movies than uh, not Corwin nor I would have time for put together. Um, I'm not sure what there is to get for you on the first watch. That's why I felt like I needed to do it again because I don't think there's any way for you to process the shift in how this mm-hmm. movie is going to be presented to you without literally watching it once. You know what I mean? It's right. so different from how other normal movies feel. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's definitely something where it's like, if you know what's going to happen and you know what's coming and you know what to watch for, it's a lot easier to understand the film in front of you. Right. It's because, you know, so much of this was just like, what the fuck is happening? Well, you know, when it's like, you know, when there's like a really like talky or uh, hectic scene at the beginning of a movie, like pre credit, and then eventually it kind of like irons itself out after like the title card comes up. This movie felt like that, but for two and a half hours. Agreed. Like you almost kept waiting for it to get ironed out and the title card to come up. And then you get more of a standard structure, editing format, cinematography, blah, 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 blah. That just, just never came. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come. Yeah. It's much it's like my wife. She doesn't come. <laughs> I don't get no respect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rodney. I wish Rodney did more movies. I'm sure so does his accountant. Ho! Oh! <laughs> Very Rodney Dangerfield joke. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I really have anything else to, to say, but obviously we covered a lot of ground on this in, in terms of, I think, what we can readily dissect without making this into a thesis paper. Um, do you have any other like major notes from this one? I have no major notes to begin with. Oftentimes when other we talk about... I was weirded sorry, out. Oh, fair. Um, oftentimes when we talk about movies that we could spend all day dissecting, a lot of it comes yeah from emotions, but also from, from, from plot and from style choices and stuff like that. But this one, if we were to talk more about it, it would really be getting into a lot of the nitty gritty of how one is supposed to feel about certain segments. 
and that's certainly an interesting conversation, but it would, it would, I, I mean, absolutely take forever. And I don't think there's any good way to do it in segment. I think you'd have to do it in whole. Um, and which means we would be here for, you know, like two fucking hours and boy, how do you reach? just not going to be doing that. Um, so we're just going to wrap it up here with the understanding that obviously there's a lot here that we didn't get to and we're just not going to. So suck my balls. Um, this was my movie, so I'm going to start. I, I, I got to say, man, I was thinking about it all day. Um, I think I got to give this a five. And it's a weird wow. five for me because it's not my usual, like, fucking love it, knocked it out of the park, perfect movie five. Um, but it's so radically different. And it is so singular. And I did feel something and I did connect to something and I enjoyed something in it. Um, that I don't think with how radically dissimilar it is to other movies that I have experience with, I, I don't think it, for me, as someone who, you know, watches movies and consumes them and recommends them to other people, I don't think I could give it anything less than that because of how well it accomplished clearly what it was going for, whether that's perfect for me or not, um, and I just, I just can't shake the feeling it left me with. And I, I, I think it deserved this, even though it might not be my most emphatic five I've, get, I've given out, if that makes sense. For the exact same reason, I'm giving it a three and a half. Oh, wow. That's actually, yeah, that's higher than I thought you'd go. Yeah. Yeah, like, it, it, it's I weird. know it was not something for me. I can understand that. I'm sure I would appreciate it more if I saw it in a different you know, a second time or in a different light, or if we sat down and watched this together and you could explain some things, I'm sure I would have enjoyed it more. Um, so I'll give it a little rudimentary bump, if you will, just for that. I'm okay with those terms. I can pick whatever fucking score I want. You don't own me. <laughs> you don't owe me. Oh. Classic Rick and Morty. Um, all right. Well, then let's get into next week's picks. Uh, Corwin had an idea, a theme, which is rare. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, I saw a post on Instagram asking, hey, which of these films by this director, like, how would you rank these films? And it was for um, my personal favorite, Denis Villeneuve. And I thought, man, I don't know how I would rank all these. I really want to know how I would. And I feel like I'd need to watch through them all again, you know, kind of back to back to kind of give them all a fair shot. Because by all means, it's been a while since I've watched, you know, all of them. Um, and I thought, wow, that would be a really great segment for us to do with the pod. So here we are. Um, and we said, hey, Denis Villeneuve doesn't have a crazy number of films that have been put out there and it wouldn't be too difficult for us to kind of round out the filmography after we've done a fair amount so far so we're gonna watch some Denis Villeneuve movies damn straight we've already talked about uh, a handful of them on the podcast before we have talked about uh, Blade Runner 2049 I think um, and and Sondi before so those are obviously crossed off already but this man's got quite the repertoire so corwin 
what are you picking? I'm going with probably the one that surprised me the most with how much I did enjoy it, which is Arrival. Right on 2016's Arrival. I am going with... Uh, so, Ensign D is one of like my favorite movies because I found it um, without getting a recommendation, which is rare for me. Um, and it ended up blowing me away. And I did not realize that was directed by him until so much later on. So hmm. I'm going to go with the movie that came out just before that. And I'm going to watch the other French language film that um, Denis Villeneuve did, which is Polytechnic. Uh, it came out in 2009. So Ooh. 2016's Arrival and 2009's Polytechnic are our two films for next week. And then after that, um, in all likelihood, Corwin, we'll have to get spooky. Spooky. That's right. Oh, 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 Halloween. That's right. It'll be time to get... It's that time of year. Spooky, spooky, spooky for Halloween. Yes, moving on. Spooky. All right, so that's it. Those are the picks for next week. Check them out or don't. Not my fucking problem. If you would like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. We never post from there, so you can follow Corwin at Juicing. Or nope, you can follow Corwin at Corwin Heller. You can follow myself at Joshua D. Tracy. And uh, until next time, y'all have a good one.